Just in time for the start of spring, a new book is out focusing on New York City's public gardens. It's called City Green. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest this week is the author of City Green, Jane Garmy. Her book takes us on a tour of a wide variety of green spaces in New York City, from pocket gardens to more expansive ones. Jane and I met at her apartment in Manhattan to chat about her book. Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Um, It's a pleasure. Delighted to talk about this book, which is very dear to my heart. So in the introduction to this book, you talk about how New Yorkers are quick to talk about things like museums and traffic and subways, but not necessarily public gardens. Why not? Um, It's interesting. I mean, it's something that's always rather surprised me. Yes, they know about High Line and... uh, Yes, um, certainly a lot of people know about the New York Botanical Garden, and uh, but after that, the you know the conversation tails off, and they they don't seem to know about the huge wealth and variety of public gardens in New York, and which which I find surprising, and I really don't have an explanation for it. Um, everybody knows Central Park, but not many people are aware that in addition to the beautiful conservatory garden, which some people, again, not as many people as you think would know about that, very few people know about the Shakespeare Garden, which is tucked away on the west side of the park, uh, close to 88th Street. Was the Shakespeare Garden part of the original plans for Central Park? Uh, No, there was a garden, uh, there was a garden there. The records are kind of hazy, and um, there was a a centennial celebration of Shakespeare in, ooh, my, my, it's failing me. Uh, I'm not sure what the date was. I think it was in about 19, uh, around about 1917, and it was decided to uh, put in a garden uh, that would honor Shakespeare and use only only flowers and plants mentioned in the Shakespeare plays. This is not your first book about gardens. How many have you penned now? Um, no, it's not my first book. It is my first book about public gardens. I've written about private gardens, the private gardens of Connecticut, private gardens of the Hudson Valley. I did an anthology of garden writing called The Writer in the Garden, and I've, I've I've written a number of I've a number of many actually articles and pieces on gardens, but this is the first book I've done on the public gardens of New York. What inspires this great interest in gardens? Um, well, it it it's one of those things. It, it came to me because there was a terrible moment in my life many years ago uh, when my husband and I bought a um, uh, we bought a. Uh, an old salt box in northwest Connecticut, and for about uh, for months and months, it seemed to me, we we agonized over replacing the chestnut floorboards, which actually turned out not to be chestnut, and and you know every interior detail of the house. And then there was a terrible day when my husband said to me, "What are we going to do about the yard?" Well, I actually didn't know what he was talking about because. Um, uh, I knew the what are we like most women. I was fairly familiar with that uh, um, uh, that that, uh, that particular line, um, but I didn't know about a yard. In England, you have a, you have Scotland Yard. You have you 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 have uh, yardsticks. You measure with yards, and children play in a schoolyard. You nobody 
everybody in England has a garden, even if it's a piece of, uh, uh, if it's 20 feet by 20 feet and uh, ha- covered with, with tarmac, it's a garden, it's not a yard. So I really didn't know what he was, what he was talking about. Anyway, I learned, I began to garden, I got interested in gardening, and I particularly became interested, first of all, in uh, uh, writing, because, and again, there was this huge emphasis on English garden writers here, and I, at the time, was more interested in American garden writers, because uh, English garden writers don't know about um, the, the... the unbelievable cold temperatures of Connecticut, the, uh, the you know the perils such as deer, snapping turtles. Um, they don't even have uh, different plant growing zones in England. Uh, so I became interested in American American garden writers, which is how I got to do an anthology. And I became more and more interested in gardens, and I and I was lucky enough to to get the chance to write about them and. Um, um, and you know, one thing led to another. I'm also, in addition to you know, to gardening up in Northwest Connecticut, I live in New York City most of the time, and I began to get more and more interested in public gardens in the city. So it was something I wanted to do for quite a long time. Was there a particular public garden here in New York City that inspired this book, City Green? Um, no, it was really more talking to people and and having people. N- n- not not really not knowing even about wonderful garden in Riverdale Wave Hill one of the most beautiful gardens um I also got assigned to do a, an article many years ago on the Chinese scholar's garden in Staten Island, which is extraordinary. And, um, it, you know, it, it just occurred to me, I wanted to share these um, share these gardens uh, with people. And also, selfishly, I wanted to find out more about the gardens I didn't know. Yeah, Staten Island is home to an authentic, classical Chinese garden. How did that come to be? It, it really came to be through the efforts of one indomitable woman called Frances Huber. Uh, she was appointed the head of the was a botanical garden that was like, in the mid-80s, was in terrible shape. It later became part of Sailor's Snug Harbor. And um, she was fresh out of, I think she'd done a, a, a degree in, in horticulture at I seem to remember it was Amherst. No, maybe it was the University of Massachusetts. I'm not sure. Anyway, the board asked her to come up with a plan um, uh, to try and do something about this garden, and she decided that that the only way to get people interested and to um, uh, for this this botanical garden to survive was to design a whole new garden, and um, she she began to do research on Staten Island and she found out that in the 19th century almost everybody who lived in Staten Island lived there was involved in the trade in the china trade which was a, you know, a huge business in those days and so she decided we're not going to do a European garden or an English garden. Or we're going to do. I want to do a Chinese uh, a Chinese garden, and she ended up visiting China. I think eleven times. Um, she she knew she knew very little about Chinese gardens when she started. Uh, by the end, she knew a huge amount. She also um, uh, she she clearly was a, a very skilled diplomat. Not only did she raise money to 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 construct the garden here, she made friends with uh, 
with with the Chinese. Uh, she got them. There is a city in China, which is now part of UNESCO, called Sushong, where they, uh, which is a famous city of gardens, and. Um, she she managed to engage the Chinese that they would uh, hire the craftsmen to to make the tiles as they were made in the 15th and 16th century. Uh, they did all the fabrication, uh, not the fa- they did all the, the the making of the garden in China, and she paid. Uh, she raised money uh, from foundations here uh, to bring across 40 craftsmen and. And all the tiles and all the plans and all the windows, and uh, she put them all up. They even brought their own Chinese chef with them. They didn't trust New York Chinese restaurants in the 80s. Uh, I can't think why. Um, and she put them up, and for six months they constructed this garden. And it's truly extraordinary, and uh, it's definitely worth visiting. I was going to say worth the trip to Staten yeah. Island, right? Worth, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. From China to Japan, talk to us about the Noguchi Museum Garden in Long Island City. Um, well, it's a wonderful garden, and Noguchi always planned for the garden. I mean, he saw this museum that he created in Queens to be uh, an indoor-outdoor space, a venue to show his work. And it's not a large garden. It's very simple. It is um, uh, Noguchi, who was, uh, whose mother was American, whose father... Um, who never acknowledged him or uh, owned him, uh, you know, never played the role of a father in his life, was Japanese. And Noguchi very much was uh, somebody who uh, um, was immersed in both traditions. So it's not a traditional Japanese garden, but there are many, many Japanese elements about it. It's very simple. It's really a, a, an exterior space to show Noguchi's work. And it's completely surrounded by a high wall, and uh, you come in there, and there's a feeling of complete silence, stillness, and tranquility. You open the book with, of all places, a cemetery, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Now, I'm sure the first thing that does not come to mind for a lot of people when they think about public gardens is a cemetery. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. Yes, and and you know, it's it's the biggest garden in New York today. I, it's 478 acres of land in Brooklyn. Um, very interesting story, and uh, because without Greenwood, um, which is which has lakes, trees, it's it, it's an amazing garden to wander in, um, and filled with some wonderful uh, neo-Gothic uh, monuments and and uh, uh, and of course, you know, a huge number of graves. Um, without without Greenwood, there would probably be no Central Park. Um, I mean, the story that's interesting is that there was a um, in in the um, early 19th century there was a huge crisis because there was no cremation. People were buried, and there was a huge population explosion uh, in America. Um, uh, there was an industrial, uh, you know, there was a huge industrial growth going on. People were moving to the cities. There was literally nowhere to bury them, and um, the first uh, so-called garden cemetery in America was actually up in um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and um, Henry Pierpoint. He went up there and he saw it, and he he realized that this that this would be New, New York or well, Brooklyn, which was a separate city then, uh, needed a cemetery, and he owned a lot of land. He was kind of known as Mr. Brooklyn, 
And he, um, he bought, he purchased, he gave some of his land. And um, he picked wonderful land in Brooklyn. It's the highest point. And he worked, um, he, he worked with an engineer to design this, this cemetery in a garden. Uh, and, you know, they wanted, he and his, and, and the engineer architect he worked with wanted it to be as, as simple and naturalistic as possible. And what happened was within about uh, 15 years, uh, they were 500,000 people a year were visiting Greenwood Cemetery, not just to go and see Uncle Jimmy's grave. No, they were going because there were no parks at that time, and this was a place you could picnic if you had a carriage. You could, uh, the, you know, there was a, a wonderful maze of meandering roads. You could, uh, anyway, people went to, they went for recreation there, and the foremost landscape architect of his day, Andrew Jackson Downing, uh, went to went went off to went to um uh, to Greenwood and he, he saw this and he um New York you know was the city fathers were, were laying out the grid system in New York and and he came back and he said he said New York needs a Greenwood without all the monuments, which is his way of saying without all the graves. And um uh, they, the city fathers, indeed agreed that there would be a central park. They, and he undoubtedly uh, would have been the the uh, the designer of Central Park, but for the fact um, he was drowned in a, a by completely by uh, you know uh, unforeseen uh, in unforeseen circumstances. So. Uh, as the story goes, the city fathers were pretty desperate. They didn't have a clue, since he was no longer there, as to who could design Central Park, which is one of the reasons they held a competition. And, of course, the rest, as they say, is, is history. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's a good story. WFUV is located directly across the street from the New York Botanical Garden. We're based on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University, and you recommend people go visit the native plant garden there. Yes. I mean, I write about... The Botanical Garden is one of the great treasures and resources of the city, and it was too huge to cover in this book as a total entity. So I picked three of my very favorite places at the Botanical Garden, and one, indeed, is the native plant garden. Um, It's fairly new. I think it was designed about eight, nine years ago. Um, and it, it's, um, I, I think it's, it, it, it's a beautiful garden. It's interesting. Um, it shows us, uh, it, it, it shows all sorts of ways to deal with the changing, uh, the changing climate that, that we're all, uh, living through now. Um, and I, I, you know, I was slow to come to appreciate native plants. I have to say I'm English and I, you know, I grew up on, on more formal gardens, but, I am totally, I, I, I think it's one of the most wonderful places in the garden, and you really can visit it at any time of the year. The Rose Garden at the New York Botanical Garden also included in this yes, book. Yes, I included the Rose Garden and, to me, to the, 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 the Enid Harp Conservatory, which to me is like a, a theatrical stage set. There are, there are um, you know, there are many shows that take place in in the conservatory. Um, the Rose Garden is is... It, it was designed by Beatrice Farrand. Um, it is 
absolutely, you've just never seen so many roses. You want to go in late May, early June, I think, to be, you know, uh, uh, to, to actually get it at this at, at its peak. And it's overwhelming um, and, and, and an amazing, just just an amazing garden. You feature the World Trade Center Memorial Garden in this book. Why was it important for you to feature that garden? Um, because I think it's a good question. Um, it, it's incredibly striking. It's very spare. It's it's essentially uh, uh, a grid with trees surrounding these two um, enormous cavernous um, uh, pools. I think I'm not sure pools is the right word for them. That that um, are on the the footprints of the two build the two original trade center buildings. To me, it's it's all about the garden. I mean, it's outside space, it's nature, it's um, uh, everything works very very. Uh, it's momentous, it's quiet, it's. Um, I don't know how to describe it. To me, it's one of the most significant outdoor spaces in, in New York, and I certainly felt it's it's maybe a. Um, uh, my definition of a garden is 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 uh, inclusive rather than exclusive. But to me, this is a garden space and one that needed to be celebrated in this book. No doubt space is at a premium here in a city like New York. That being said, what garden would you say takes best advantage of a small space? Well, Paley Park is... is uh, uh, you know, is is probably um, the preeminent best pocket park to be to be designed, um, and certainly in this city, it's it, it's a tiny space, and and yet you step off the pavement, up those steps, and into that park, and you are away from the street in a in a very real sense. Another very small garden that I love is a garden that. Um, I call it a public garden because anyone can see it from the street. Um, it's the tiny space in front of an old New York tenement building between 9th and 10th Avenue on 56th Street. And it was made by um, David Scalza, who, who lives in the building. Uh, he just decided to make a garden. He lived on the first floor outside his window, and this garden has been there for about 19 years and I um, I go past it very often, and I, I I just think it's it certainly takes great advantage of a really even smaller space than Paley Park. So where is Paley Park? Uh, Paley Park is on Fifty Third Street between Fifth and Madison. Also on the east side is Carl Schultz Park. Yes, and that that's an interesting. That's a very much a community park in Yorkville, and it has an interesting history. And like so many parks in this city, it simply wouldn't be as vibrant, alive, and flourishing, uh, and and such a community resource as it is today, were it not for a group of people in the. Uh, the 80s and 90s who got together and took it upon themselves to save the garden, which was, you know, and and this is a story that gets repeated again and again with so many parks. Um, uh, the city was, was, you know, was bankrupt. The parks department had no funds or resources at all. And a Central Park, as we know at that time, was considered highly dangerous. And the Carl Schultz Park was, a, a, you know, another of these desolate, bad, um, 
totally unloved and unused and avoided uh, avoided green spaces in New York, hardly green anymore. Yeah, the fiscal crisis yeah. of the 1970s yeah. and 80s really did not treat the parks well. Among the heroes, Bette Midler. Uh, yes, well, Bette Midler was a little later. She came in the 90s, uh, and she was wonderful. She is. I, I refer to people as being garden angels in this book, and Bette Midler's right up there. She's a, uh, she's one of the archangels. Uh, she came back. She moved back to the city, um, I think it was in the early 90s, and she was living on the Upper West Side, and she uh, she was horrified by Fort Tryon Park. Uh, she went up there, and you know, there was litter. There was, you know, there was. Uh, oh, it was a disaster. And she got together with a group of a group. She got pulled together a group of friends, volunteers, and they started to clean up the park. And that one thing led to another, and she founded this organization called the New York Restoration Project. Uh, the New York Restoration Project today is an astonishing organization. It um, it works with a large number of community parks. It, it has primary responsibility for many of them. This, this all actually came about because in the uh, late 90s, uh, uh, Giuliani, who was then mayor, put up uh, put up for sale. Um, it was well over a, a, a hundred spaces in the city that were were community parks or community spaces or had been used by communities. And the New York Restoration Project raised the funds to buy these spaces to work with, to develop, and to work with and be a resource for community groups to run their own parks. And um, they have a number of parks. And and we in, in my book I. I, I focused on one in Willis Park uh, in the Bronx, which um, uh, is, the, you know, without Bette Midler, um, the, there would be many less wonderful gardens in New York today. You also write about the West Side Community Garden, which is also a grassroots effort, right? That was, yes, that was one of the first and probably one of the most successful grassroots efforts. It um, was a group of parents in the... I think it was in the late 70s, um, the, you know, the, there was a huge um, uh, sort of urban re- reclamation project on the west side, and there was a block in the west 80s between Columbus and Amsterdam. I think it goes from 88th to 89th Street. The entire building, the entire block was raised, and it was going to be uh, middle-income, uh, middle and lower-income urban housing. The city at that point went bankrupt, the developer vanished, and there was this empty space that became known as Tar City, uh, T-I-R-E, because car thieves would dump the tars of the cars they'd stolen after they'd taken the parts they wanted. And it was an eyesore, it was dangerous, it was uh, certainly unlovely. And a group of uh, neighborhood parents and, and concerned people, they they literally went and they occupied the space. They began to clean it up, and they got the community board to agree to let them make a garden there. And it was a very... I, I, I don't have pictures of it. I've never seen it. They, I was told, you know, it, was, it became a, a very important community place. And then uh, about tw- 10 or 12 years later... Um, a, a developer came along uh, to develop the uh, to develop the, the this space, and um, they were such a powerful group by that time that they negotiated with the city uh, not only to 
and liking it to give them the space to to have a garden, a sizable amount of this of of space. But they also um, uh, the developer was persuaded to pay for the development of a really a well designed community garden. So and it's it's sizable. They certainly it's certainly not a block by a block, but it's um, it's a very sizable space. It goes through from 88th to 89th Street. It's a wonderful garden. Um, it's um, they have allotments that for 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 low you can get on a waiting list and have your own vegetable garden there. There's there's a whole community area. They do an amazing tulip show coming up very soon. Uh, I think it it really gets going in April, and it's um it's a membership organization. I think it costs five dollars to belong, and part of belonging is you you volunteer. They do. All they have taken total responsibility for the garden, and uh, unlike most most other community gardens in the city, grassroots com- community gardens, the city still owns the space and rents it for a peppercorn rent to the um, to the community. Um, but the West Side Community Garden, they have a, they have a deed; it's their land, and and actually. This becomes more and more important as gentrification happens. There are many, there's some interesting gardens, uh, interest, very interesting community gardens on the Lower East Side. And, and um, you, you know, the, the, the community residents who run and, and work in those gardens are, are always anxious because as gentrification goes on and as the, you know, the Lower East Side becomes a, a mecca for builders and developers, they don't own their land. They have to depend on the city to continue to, um, to, to rent them that space. Um, the West Side Community Garden is unique in that nothing but nothing can ever happen now to that garden. Any gardens here in the city remind you of gardens in England? Um, well, I think probably Wave Hill and the Conservatory Garden would be um, uh, uh, probably what come to mind. Was it challenging for you to distill the book down to only these public gardens that you have here? Uh, yeah, it, it, choice. It was a hard choice, and sometimes it was. It, it was, you know, it's it's idiosyncratic in some ways. Um, I would have loved to have had many more gardens. How many are there in all in this book? Uh, there are twenty six gardens in this book. One that we have not yet talked about is the Franklin D. Roosevelt Four Freedoms Park. You include that in this book. Oh, I think that's one of the great gardens of New York. It's a modernist garden. It's extraordinary. He always saw the garden as being part of his, uh, uh, part of the design for the for the, mon- the for the the Roosevelt Monument. Uh, again, it never would have happened, but for a few. Well, it, it it's interesting. I mean, he died. The city went bankrupt. The plans were never finished, and I don't know if you remember, but. I think about 15 years ago, his son made this film called My My Father the Ar- I think it was called My Father the Architect, and it it was one of those sleeper films that suddenly became hugely popular, and um, and it 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 generated a whole new interest in Louis Kahn, who is I think certainly one of the one of the greatest uh, greatest of 20th century architects, and. As a result of that, people got together and they, they, you, you know, they worked to both to get the funding for the monument and, of course, the garden. Uh, it's a really, really beautiful place to go. I, lo- I love that garden.
From great architects to great photographers, let's talk about Mick Hales, who's the photographer of this book. Yeah, yeah. But well, Mick Mick is 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 a wonderful photographer. He was wonderful to work with. He was as enthusiastic as I was. He has a great eye. Um, it was a pleasure from start to finish. Is that the first time you worked with Mick? Uh, it is the first time I've worked with Mick. I was aware of his work, and uh, maybe it's ironic. He also is English, but has lived here for many years, uh, that it takes two English people to do a book on the public gardens of New York City. <laughs> but there it is. What are you working on now? I am not working on a book at the moment. Um, I just did an article for uh, for First Dibs for Introspective Magazine on this, I think, extraordinary um, floral artist is a terrible term, but he is an artist with flower uh, who works with plants and flowers called Daniel Ost and he is um, I would say he's like the Andy Goldsworthy of flowers and he just was, uh, the Botanical Garden invited him in to design the Orchid Show which opens any day now maybe today it even opens um, and um, I am fascinated by his work and I, I just finished a piece on him. I also want to talk about this book, I'm sort of more and more interested in gardens in the city so what a great time to be putting out a book about public gardens in New York City as we are all itching for the warm weather and for the flowers to bloom. I, I think I, like everybody, just can't wait um, for the ground to unfreeze, the sun to shine, and to get my fingers in the ground again and to visit and walk and enjoy more gardens. Jane, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Jane Garmy is the author of City Green, Public Gardens of New York. It's out now from the Monticelli Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. And thank you for listening.